Hey, Adam Smolcom here, lead pastor of Vive Church. Welcome to our podcast. I pray that God will speak to you through the message today and that a greater level of faith would be unlocked in your life. God bless. Well, I'm excited to be bringing the word to all of you. I'm excited to be diving into evangelism. We're beginning a new series today called New Era, like Pastor Adam was talking about. But I don't want the title to be misleading for you. I think sometimes when we think about a new era, we think about God changing things. But what I've learned in my time of walking with Jesus is that God is far more into changing you than changing your circumstances. And sometimes God will keep you in a circumstance to show you that you can change. And when you change, your season changes. And so a new era is about more so a new you. And as you become a new you, you'll enter a new era and your season will change because you've been changed, not by might, not by power, but by the spirit of the living God. And so we're going to come around a prophetic word that Pastor Adam spoke over our church at Avive at Five several months ago, the era of the evangelists. And we're going to come around this reality together, understanding that evangelism isn't for some people. It's not only for ministers and pastors and teachers and leaders, but this is something that every single one of us have been commissioned by God to activate in our day-to-day world. So I'm excited to get into it. But before I do, uh, it is my honor and my privilege to give honor where honor is due. And uh, man, I am so grateful for our lead pastors. I'm grateful because my wife and I have been in this church for a couple years now, and uh, we have become more loving since being at this church toward people. Because back in the day, if you looked at me weird, that was it. Cut you off of my mind, you know? He's just like, I was like, oh, you're weird. We're done. Um... No one else can relate. So, um, but since being under just a healthy covering, I've learned from them that uh, that mentality was more about uh, not allowing people to love me fully. And so it was hard to embrace people fully. And when you know that you're fully loved by God, but not only fully loved by God, you're fully loved by people, it'll transform the way that you live. And so I'm grateful to be under loving leadership with you. So can we thank God together for our lead global pastors? Love you, grateful for you. Honored. All right, let's get into it. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be reading a lot of the Bible today. We're going to be going into a lot of teaching. This is a guy by the name of Peter who's writing this book. He walked for three and a half years with Jesus as a disciple. He was the hothead of the group. In the words of white chicks, he was the said it, not the think it. Well, he was thinking it. Well, you said it. He was the said it. Uh, He was very outspoken, very powerful. And before Jesus, his name Simon meant waverer, a waverer in emotions, uh, a waverer in thought and feelings. But when When he confessed Jesus to be Lord, he was called the rock. Cephas, solid Peter, and on that rock, God would build and establish his church. And so this is Peter, probably about 20 years after this moment, a general in the faith, planting churches and writing to churches that are going through some difficult things. He's specifically in this letter writing to Asia Minor, and these are Gentiles, people, non-Jews, who have been called out of darkness into glorious light, and there was a cost to following Jesus, and that cost was suffering. Not suffering like being canceled on social media. Not suffering like somebody tweeting about you, but suffering that was leading to death and persecution and jail. And he encourages them in uh, his book. And we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 8. Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, blessed to be a blessing, love that, that you may obtain a blessing. 
For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this is where we're gonna camp out, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always bring prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. He addresses our tone. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than doing evil. When I played ball at San Jose State, when I thought I was a lot better than I was on the traveling squad as a freshman, we would say something commonly like, hey, yo, man, I'm built different. Built different. And as believers, we are built different, but I want to come around the idea this morning, built defensive. Built defensive. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, have your way. Bless your word. Let it be beneficial and profitable to our souls. Open our hearts, open our minds to receive all that you have for us. God, we want it all, all of it. So have your way in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. And amen. Look at your neighbor, give him a high five. Tell him you look good. Let him know. Speak it into existence. Um, I, I'm on Facebook been on Facebook since 2009, good year, graduated in 2010, class of diamonds, and uh, the short story is, I, I'm a millennial, so I'm not on Facebook often, but there is rarely a day that goes by where I don't hop on face quick, Facebook quickly to check my memories. The reason why I check my memories is it is a reminder of how far I've come, and secondly, it's a reminder of what needs to be deleted so that Voxgen doesn't get a hold of it and I turn into a meme. <laughs> this is essential. And something that's probably the most cringy thing for me is when old sermons come into my feed. The reason why it's cringy is because someone decided to ordain me at 21 years old, and that was some very interesting sermons. I can actually recall one time when I was preaching a sermon out of Matthew's gospel, specifically when Jesus told Peter, who were reading about that, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I remember a young man getting saved and giving his life to Jesus in that sermon. And he walked up to me and said, yo, Pastor Chase, so good. I love that people say that. So good. Oh my gosh. Hey, I just had a quick question because I'm new to this thing. What are the gates of hell? And I was like, mm, you know, the, there's this gate and and it's blocked, you know, and I had no idea what it meant. I had no idea what it meant. I actually came from a background where I knew a lot of scriptures, but in honesty, I had really no idea what they were talking about. Like even when Jesus said, come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls because my burden is light and my yoke is easy. For years, I thought that he was talking about eggs when he was talking about yolks. Some of you in this room, you just realized that that scripture is not about eggs. And um, 
I had no idea that, that a yoke was actually a tool that was used in ancient times to connect two oxen with a blade in the middle for the purpose of plowing and tilling up hard ground. I, I just didn't know that. I remember even preaching out of John chapter 16 and, and literally building my message around Jesus when he said, for in this life you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And I had like a Taylor Swift spin on it in my early 20s. Like, I knew you were in trouble when you walked in. The struggle was real. It was real. And sometimes I think that we can know scriptures in our heads, but not have a full understanding of what words actually mean. And the Bible is very clear that it's in our minds that we serve the Lord. That discretion will preserve us and understanding will keep us. And even God spoke through, the pro spoke through a prophet, the mouthpiece of God in the book of Hosea, and said, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. So it's very vital and, dare I say, essential that as we're in this era, the era of the evangelist is Vibe Church, that we come around a theological understanding and a definitive understanding of exactly what evangelism is, not only so that we can understand it, but more so so that we can live it and do it. And I want to say right off the top that sometimes we confuse evangelism with good works. I want to be very clear this afternoon that evangelism is not you being nice to a mean person. Evangelism is not you giving money to a homeless person. Evangelism is not you a few times a year choosing to go to your in-laws. Come on, somebody. It almost is. Um, evangelism isn't even us going to a, a country in, like Africa and building wells. That's actually theologically known as good works. Now, I, I want us to understand that good works are important and they're a huge part of the life of the believer. Even in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So the, the difference between us and other people is that the purpose of the believer's good works is so that they would look past us and see God. So in other words, evangelism is far more ministerial than it is philanthropic. For us, we must have this understanding that evangelism does not equivalent to good works. And sometimes we also wrongly believe that evangelism is only for some people. I was raised in the Pentecostal church in Corona, California. And one thing we know about the Pentecostal church is that uh, we get a little bit wild. We do. I'm talking about the hula hoops. I'm talking about the tambourines. I'm talking about people being slain in the spirit in the lobby. You're clapping. How are you doing in your life? Um, I'm talking about like the real stuff. I'm talking about grandma in the back on the tambourine joining the worship experience. Just having the time of her life. This is the churches that I was raised in. And I remember several times a year that we would usually have someone come in, usually from another country, and we called them an evangelist. And they would share what God was doing in other nations, usually partnered with a gospel message. And in my youthfulness, I figured that is what an evangelist is. I say all this to say that many of us may have a different perspective on evangelism, but it's essential that we have an understanding of exactly what it is. Now, evangelism, by definition, is the act of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, a.k.a. the gospel, with the aim to persuade listeners to follow him. Again, evangelism is the act of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ with the aim of getting people to listen and follow him. In other words, church, it is impossible to evangelize without the gospel being presented orally. 
Evangelism in its purest form is the presentation of the gospel for, this, for the purpose of persuading people to follow Jesus. Now, what is the gospel? Man, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The, the gospel is the story of Jesus, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and what happens to us for those who believe upon Jesus, which is eternal life. John makes this very simple in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the good news of Jesus. And you are evangelizing whenever you are presenting that story that has drastically transformed every single one of us in Jesus' name for the purpose of persuading people to believe the same thing. That is evangelism. Now that we have an understanding of what evangelism is and what the gospel is, we must ask ourselves, what are the proper methodologies for us to persuade people to follow Jesus. If we know our message, what is our method? If we know what the message is, what should the method be? Now, there are many methods to evangelizing, but there is one that we're going to unpack today that I think will set you up to be more effective in your evangelism because you're defensive, therefore being offensive as a result of having a strong defense. Peter has a lot to say about evangelism. Peter has a lot to write about in regards to evangelism. But the first thing we have to understand about Peter is that he is writing to a church that is under immense persecution. And he opens up chapter 1 saying words that you wouldn't expect on the surface. I wonder if you were going to write a letter to believers that were dying for their faith, maybe in places like underground China or Saudi Arabia, I wonder what your opening statements would be. What would be your opener? What would be your intro? What would you say to people that were abnormally suffering in society for the same Jesus that we serve, the same Jesus that we worship, the same presence that we're experiencing through the Holy Spirit who's revealing the Son to the glory of God the Father? What would you say to a church that's going through the ringer for the same Jesus that bought us with his blood? Honestly, I, I would probably be like, yo, I'm so sorry. I know it's hard. I'm I'm praying, we're praying. I know that things are difficult right now, but we're standing with you. But interestingly enough, Peter in chapter one opens up his letter and he comes out hot. Now, I want you to imagine this. This is Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So people are scattered throughout this empire being persecuted. It's very likely that this letter got read in multiple places, very likely in homes. And so imagine the tension as they're getting ready to hear from a general, an apostle that literally walked with Jesus for three and a half years, saw him in his body when he was alive, and saw him in his resurrected body when he got up from the grave, a man that has been transformed by the Spirit of God and was living in the totality of his calling that began on a beach when Jesus said, you're not going to be a fisher of fish, but you're going to be a fisher of men. And now, decades later, he's operating in that gift set and he's going to encourage you in what you're going through. And Peter opens up the book by reminding the church of eternity. 
He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, a.k.a. the last days, in order to give people hope for their present reality, he pointed them to their eternal security that was found in Jesus. Church, can I just remind you that I believe that we can give wisdom in our words. I believe that we can give practical advice, but I never want us to be dismissive when people are going through it to remind them of the eternal hope that they have in Jesus. I'm not saying that we're not, that we're not sensitive to what people are going through, but there is something that happens in our souls when we are reminded that we have eternal security in Jesus that we have shared with him in his death. Therefore, we will share with him in his resurrection. Jesus is more than enough. And Peter is reminding them of this in the opening of his book. In chapter one, Peter is, is reminding the church that their savior, Jesus, is so much greater than their suffering. And for those who I assume some of you are going through the ringer, or maybe in a difficult time or a difficult season who are believing for a new era, can I remind you that Jesus is so much greater than your suffering? In chapter 2, Peter transitions his tone and he begins to give deep clarity and understanding on how to respond to human authority when there is unjust suffering in our lives. And he does this again primarily through the example of Jesus. And in chapter 3, Peter gives a direct order to how kingdom marriages should operate compared to worldly marriages. I love that. I encourage, I encourage my married folks and my single folks get a little glimpse. It's really good. And then he shifts his tone somewhat suddenly to addressing husband and wives in the church to the church at large. And he does this in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, Peter was there at Caesarea Philippi when he was called the rock. When Jesus said, you're the rock, and then he pointed, and on this rock, in the midst of chaos, false gods, disarray, I'm going to build my church right here. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And something that Peter really wanted to get across to the church of Jesus Christ was the fact that he wanted to address how we act toward each other as believers before how we act toward non-believers. The reason why this is important is because we cannot say authentically that we love a world that we don't know and not love the church that we do know. You see, Peter was there at the Last Supper well, we just celebrated communion when Jesus was getting ready to give up his life, when he took the bread and he took the cup and he began to give it to disciple by disciple. But before he did that, Jesus got down on his knees and he washed the disciples' feet 
abnormal service, <laughs> but the purpose of abnormal service was to call them to abnormal service. Once you've been served abnormally, therefore you can serve abnormally. And so he does this very strategically, but lovingly, because that was the overflow of his heart. That's actually who he is. And from that place, after he got done with this amazing moment, John, in John 13, verse 35, and Peter was there for this, said these words, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's a lot easier to love people that you don't know or to claim that you love people that you don't know while forsaking to love the people that you do. And the transformative power of the community of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the workmanship of God, the hands and feet of Jesus is found in how we love one another. And in a day and age where the church is under attack in ways that I don't know history has ever seen. Very uniquely, people believing they don't need the gathering. They don't need the bride of Christ. They can do it on their own. Peter addresses, hey, this is how we need to treat one another. In regards to the church, we need to have unity in our thinking, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And then from there, he begins to transition almost seemingly into how we respond to people who don't believe what we believe. In verse 13, he says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, this question that he poses is rhetorical, but it's a little bit confusing on the surface. I actually had to sit down for <laughs> several hours and unpack it and, and read commentaries on it because it, it would seem that the natural response to a question like, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? It might seem like Peter is saying, hey, if you're doing what's right, don't worry about harm coming to you. But then in the next breath, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteous, righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And this is coming from a guy who would later be crucified on a cross upside down for what he believed about Jesus, martyred. And yet he's convinced that the glory of God, that eternity is so much greater than his present suffering that comparing earthly harm to heavenly reward is incomparable, potent. And so from there, he, he, he talks about this, that even if we do suffer for righteousness, righteousness sake, that we are blessed. And then he instantly begins to address fear. He addresses fear. He says, do not fear, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Christ the Lord is holy. He's, he's trying to get the church that's suffering to understand that we're not called to be fearful. We're not called to cower back when we face opposition. But we're actually called to engage it. But then he gives us the blueprint on how to engage it. Thank you, Peter. And he says something that we might miss. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That word holy means other. It means set apart. He's like, remember that God is in a different category than anybody else over your life. And he uses a word that, uh, <laughs> that, that we might say with our lips, but it's probably more difficult to live because some of us love Jesus as our Savior, but we struggle with him as our Lord. 
He addresses the lordship of Jesus. That the kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's a monarchy. We have a king who has set laws, rules, and regulations in place and knows how life should be lived because he created it. And even more so beyond that, he knows how we should live because he's the creator and we're his creation. And because of that, we have a free will. We have a reason to submit to the plan of God and trust the lordship of Christ, even when culture is saying that this isn't God's design, this isn't the right way to live. And so he says, remember that God is holy. Now, what is remembering God being holy going to do for you? I will tell you what it will do for you. It will remember that because he is holy, you're holy. That because God is set apart, he has set you apart. And then from there, he begins to continue and say some beautiful words that will help us in how we become more evangelistic in our lives. Now, what I would expect Peter to say is, so in light of this, Go reach people. <laughs> in light of this, um, go, uh, go into the streets and the highways and the byways and, and find people that need to know Jesus. But he actually speaks more to the defense of a believer rather than the offense of a, of a believer. And I want to give you guys three practical observations about defensive evangelism, which I believe will help you in your journey of evangelizing for the glory of God and the benefit of the church. Number one, defensive evangelism is not defensive in worldly terms, but it's apologetic. Defensive evangelism is not defensive in worldly terms, but it's apologetic. Now, when we think about somebody being defensive, most of the time that has negative connotation attached to it. We think about someone who gets easily offended, someone who every time they're criticized wants to avoid it. Walls come up and they shut down or they get loud and they get big. That is not the defensiveness that Paul is addressing. Paul is not addressing a defensiveness that is weak, but he's describing a defensiveness that is apologetic in its approach. And the apologetic side of his defensiveness is proving of the faith. He's saying, hey, um, your defensiveness is apologetic. It's proving the faith. It's solidifying that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, for many of us, when we think about apologetics, we may think more about rhetoric and speech rather than action and deed. We think about words that are fancy, that could critically get someone to follow Jesus. We think about philosoph a philosophical understanding of God, reaching the skeptic, reaching the atheist, reaching the agnostic, and men and women of God. I love apologetics in that way. We should be strong in understanding God's word. We should have a passion for inerrancy. We should have a passion to acquire more knowledge, but knowledge without application is at best misplaced. And so the potency of God's word is not only in you getting the knowledge of it, but it's actually when you begin to apply it, when it transitions from what you know in your head to how you live your life in your day-to-day. -day. And realize that once again, this church is going through suffering. And his apologetics that he's speaking to is around this idea that how you go through suffering differently than the world will actually enable you to have an opportunity to present the gospel. That is the primary point that he's trying to get across to the saints. How do we know this? In verse 15, 
In verse 16, I'm sorry, he says, having a, oh, whoops, verse 15. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Don't miss it. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. What Peter is saying is that uh, people should be asking you why you live the way that you live because how you endure what you're enduring. And I, I would submit that if people around you aren't wondering why you're different, then maybe you're not that different. If people around you aren't wondering why you respond when everybody else is in chaos, if people around you aren't wondering why you have peace in the midst of this recession, if people around you aren't wondering why you bring order when there's chaos, if people around you aren't wondering why you stay loving even in the face of opposition, I would submit that maybe we're not as different as the world as we think we are. And one thing we see very, very clearly theologically across the board is that the church expanded through suffering and opposition because people were drawn to the fact that they were defending their faith because people were curious about the fact of how can you endure this the way that you are? What is it, what is it about you that enables you to have peace and be the way that you are? People are enamored by that. And so for us as the church, we must ask ourselves, are we only trying to defend Jesus with our words? Or are we also trying to defend Jesus with our life? Number two, defensive evangelism is more about people pursuing you and less about you pursuing people. I remember several years ago, I was in, a, I was in high school, my, my high school years is what many would call their college years. It's when I got a little bit cray. And I got amazing, amazing parents who prayed me back into the kingdom. They were absolutely epic. But remember when I was 17, we we're having this like big church event and I was inviting my friends. <laughs> and, uh, and almost every single friend that I invited, when I invited them to this church event where like there was like this burger company that was sponsoring it, there was gonna be like, it was called the Big Pound Off. Yes, it was called the Big Pound Off. It was like the Big Pound Off, big weightlifting competition. I'm inviting all my guys. And all of them were like, yo, you go to church? Like, genuinely shocked. Like, bro, you go to church? Oh, I had no idea. I'm like, yeah, they're called out ones, you know? Like, but, but, but for some of us, if, if we're being honest, we're just not living as different as we should be living. Now, I don't want you to judge yourself necessarily from the standpoint of the fact that Jesus doesn't call you to perfection. You're made perfect through your belief in Jesus and you have right standing with God because of your belief in Jesus. Pastor Vance unpacked that when he talked about justification. However, sanctification is your gradual growth to becoming like Jesus. You should be able to look back and be like, look, I'm not where I used to be. I'm not talking the same way. I'm not living the same way. I don't have the same habits. I don't have the same struggles. I have graduated. And what that will be is appealing to the world. And it will draw people to see that we're indeed different. Lastly, defensive evangelism does not bow or cower to the culture, but it surrenders and submits to God and God alone. 
It does not cower, it does not shrink back, but it surrenders and submits to God and God alone. There's three Hebrew boys in the book of Daniel who their slave names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And their God-given names are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And these young kids, very early on in their youth, very likely around 13 years old, were sent to BU, Babylon University. And they were sent there for the purpose of being educated in the ways of Baal, studying things that were countercultural to everything that, be, that they believed, but even beyond that, studying things that were lies and not true, that didn't honor the one true God. And yet they're in these classrooms, I imagine, winking at each other like, we know who we are. They're in these classrooms in a time where Babylon is ruling over the Jews because of their disobedience, and yet they're remaining who they are and getting promoted. Because whether we know it or not, godly integrity is attractive. Character is attractive. And them just being godly men led to promotion, but there was a day where King Nebuchadnezzar later into them being educated in the ways of Baal built a 90-foot statue of gold and required everyone to bow down and worship. And Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael drew a line in the sand and said, no, we're not going to do that. That's a line. We know who the God of God is. We know who the King of Kings is. And in Daniel chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, the Bible lets us know that then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace." And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Man, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came out hot. They answered and said to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> That's how I hear, oh, Neb. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Suddenly we see men that are being promoted for their faith, potentially facing suffering for their faith. And when it's a matter of worship, that is when we become the most defensive. Worship is to acknowledge that there is something higher than God. And there is none higher than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now I want to bring to your mindset that we have no biblical record that as thousands of people are gathering, bowing before this Baal, bowing before this false god, we have no record that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego started clapping their hands like, hey, we're here, we're not going to do it. They weren't mocking, they just stood up. Yeah, no. No. Too far. And then they use the same words, powerful, confident in the fact, church, that God would save them. Yep. 
But if he didn't, it wouldn't change anything. And for us as believers, we need to have that same defensive confidence. That God will take care of us, but even if God doesn't, it's producing something in our lives that will allow the immeasurable more purpose of God in the earth to be fulfilled. That's why Paul could be confident and say, yeah, to die is gain, to live is Christ. What can man do to me if God be for me? Who can be against me? So maybe God has you in this season not to change it, but to change you so that in you being changed, communities will be changed, companies will be changed, families will be changed, and generations will be changed. It is the era of the evangelist and you are built defensive. Hey, I hope you were blessed by that message. We release new content every single week here at Vive Church. And so if you don't wanna miss any of it, I would encourage you, go ahead and subscribe. Also visit our website, vivechurch.org to stay up to date with everything that's happening in the life of Vive Church. God bless you.